Welcome to Managed Carecast, a podcast from the American Journal of Managed Care. This is Pat Salber with the American Journal of Managed Care doing another podcast. This one I'm really excited about because I'm speaking with two people who co-authored a very interesting opinion piece um, published June 9th in the British Medical Journal. It was titled, There's No Stopping COVID-19 Without Stopping Racism. The two experts who have joined me today are Ingrid Katz. She's a physician and MD who's an assistant professor at Harvard Medical School. And as a physician scientist, board licensed in internal medicine and infectious disease, she's focused her research over the past decade on social determinants of health-seeking behavior among people living in low-resource settings the U.S. and Sub-Saharan Africa. Abrar Karan is an MD and an MPH. He's an internist in the Department of Medicine at the Brigham and Women's Hospital and Harvard Medical School. And he is also an expert in um, social determinants of health and concentrating on healthcare for the poor. In fact, he edited a, a book called Protecting the Health of the Poor a few years ago. So welcome, both of you. Thank you so much for having us. Thanks for having us. So let's dive in. In your BMJ article, it said that despite critics telling doctors to stay in your lane, critics like to tell us to stay in our lane. Um, In fact, you say in the article, addressing racism is in our lane. Can can you explain what you mean by that? So this was a piece that that Ingrid and I had talked a lot about even before we wrote it. just in terms of everything that we were seeing, both in terms of the protests that were happening, as well as the patients that we've been caring for for years. Um, And during COVID-19, the vast majority of these patients, even at the Brigham where we both work, were patients of color, um, patients who were frontline workers, who had been disproportionately impacted by COVID-19, both because of where they worked, where they lived, um, with, without having the social protections that they would need, such as PPE, for even for non-healthcare workers, um, and were disproportionately being hospitalized uh, and dying from COVID-19. And so when the protests against racism um, were happening, to us it was more than just people congregating and potentially propagating the spread of COVID-19 because they were crowding but it was more than that. It was the possibility that the entire world um, would see racism in a different light and that anti-racism and equity would be more centered in the entire response to everything we did in healthcare and hopefully with COVID-19. And so in writing the piece, it was important to sort of bring together how these two forces were interconnected, protests against racism, as well as the inequities we were seeing with COVID-19. They were not separate issues. They were actually one and the same. And so that really was what drove the piece in the first place. And then in addition, um, that's where this whole notion of, you know, we'd been people on Twitter and other places, and even before this, when it came to gun control, had been saying, doctors, stay in your lane. Well, we were the ones that were taking care of patients who were suffering from COVID-19, who were primarily Black and Latinx. And so we felt like this was our lane. And I'm sure Ingrid will have more to add to that, but just that's just kind of a little bit background. Ingrid, do you want to comment? Yeah, I mean, I think to all of Abrar's points, I mean, I think this is exactly it. I think as physicians 
and any real frontline healthcare worker, you are right in there in the trenches and you're witnessing the explosion that is occurring in communities of color, particularly Black and Latinx. And I think we know from the data that the total numbers of deaths have been on the rise significantly in these communities. I think in August alone, um, deaths among African-Americans rose by eight per 100,000. And, and in the Latinx community, it was nine per 100,000, whereas in the white community, it rose by four per 100,000. So there are clear data that show the absolute significant impact that COVID is having on people of color right now. And so um, this is staying in our lane, in our opinion. It's, it's focusing on the issues that matter. Okay, well, I'm, I'm with you on that. Um, I'm wondering if you could dive a little bit deeper into the health impact. So it sounds like what you just described, those statistics would be that there's a, an excess number of deaths in um, Black and Hispanic and, and Latinx communities compared to white communities and during this time of, of the pandemic. So I'm, I'm not sure if all those numbers reflect deaths from COVID. But we have known for years, although we haven't done much about it, that um, that um, Black and Hispanic people suffer certain illnesses um, more than, than others. Is, is that all racism too? And what are the underlying factors? Is it because people live too close together? Is it because they're poor? Is it because they have some genetic reason or cultural reason why uh, they don't take care of themselves? I mean, what, what is really going on here? So, you know, I think it's, it's interesting um, in the sense that some of the reasons that people maybe in the lay press or in general may ascribe would be trying to say it's cultural or it's just um, the choices that people make. And I think that that sort of blame narrative um, has been detrimental in a lot of ways because it misses that this is actually really a structural issue, right? So a lot of healthcare outcomes that we see don't happen in the hospital. They don't happen at the bedside. We actually see sort of the end result of what is what is a failure to protect people of all um, of all ethnicities, of all uh, racial backgrounds um, in, in the community, right? And so um, this could th this manifests itself in in many different ways. Um, access to access to care at all, um, access to education, access to healthy foods. Um, in some parts of the country, even access to safe water. We see this both in the United States, and as you'd mentioned, Ingrid and I both work in global health, we see this on, in the global setting as well. And so it's really a lot of these sort of structural factors that set people up to fail um, in, these, in these sort of cycles, cycles of poverty, cycles of impoverishment. Um, and, and so that the health outcomes of those, I think, are what we see after all of these insults sort of happen over and over again this sort of chronic stress um, in the community that then later manifests itself in sort of higher rates of chronic disease, um, in global health, higher rates of infectious diseases. Um, and that's what we end up treating as clinicians. But then we, a lot of us are now trying to move upstream and sort of think about these social determinants of health um, as being the major drivers of, of, of health in general. Um, so that's a couple of thoughts I have on that. Yeah, I agree with everything that Abrar said. I mean, I, what I would say is, you know, we know, you know, through these pathways of structural racism that, that Abrar highlighted, that all of these are interconnected with forces like social deprivation, 
from reduced access to employment, housing, education, um, increased environmental exposures, as Sabrar said, um, food deserts, um, inadequate access to healthcare, injury, trauma, um, stressors related to violence, um, and, and then, of course, diminished participation in, um, in the healthcare system because of these of, of access issues. And so I think the point that we had hoped to make is that these forces move way beyond any individual or even in any given community, that these are forces that have been put into place through hundreds of years. And pandemics have a way of magnifying what is already there. Most of my work prior to this has been on HIV and you can see a lot of the um, inequalities that have existed throughout the world just get magnified when you layer on top a pandemic. And so that's what we're seeing here with COVID, that this is a layering effect. This isn't something suddenly novel that's happening just due to COVID. Right, I think that's a really good point because all of us have been trained that there were um, certain things like hypertension that's worse in uh, African-Americans, for example, but we weren't trained about the role that the unique stresses in their life played in the development of that disease. Um, is, that, is that something that you guys are looking at? I would say that a lot of people are now focusing on this um, and this whole notion of approaching medical problems as social problems is, is really starting to get um, more on the radar of even medical trainees, which is really critical and important that we have a, um, a socio-behavioral sort of lens on, on the way that diseases affect particular communities um, disproportionately. You know, one thing that was interesting that, that Ingrid had mentioned was that this is not new, that this has been going on for a long time. And so even though we now have a, a real focus on uh, structural racism as a driver of health inequities, that this has been going on for so long that actually it may be that we're not paying attention or that a lot of times it could also be just intentionally uh, that the system knows what's going on but doesn't do anything to sort of change it, that those power dynamics exist for a reason. Um, and there's a lot more that we can get into on that. But I would say that um, one of my friends said, it's, it's not surprising that Black and Latinx people are dying disproportionately of COVID. What's surprising is that we're acting surprised because this has been going on for so long. And so that's the bigger surprise is that we expected any different outcome when we have the exact same system. So I'm gonna tell you a little story. I used to be very involved in the issue of domestic violence as a healthcare issue. Actually, I was the first doctor to work with an organization here in the Bay Area on, on that um, issue. And, uh, and when I used to give talks to doctors and health plan people about violence, I was told, why are you talking about that, Pat? That's not a healthcare issue. What can we do about that? Actually, it turns out now, 20-something years later, we know that there is a lot of stuff that we can do about it. But you guys just laid out this, this huge range of social issues that impact health. And so my question to you is, what can healthcare, because you know we're in the healthcare supposed system, what can healthcare do about it? Yeah, I think that, so that's a great question. And I mean, I think that's why we chose to write this piece together. I mean, certainly our voices, particularly when united are powerful ones. And there are ways of course, to lift up the voices of people 
who may not have that level of power um, and provide them with opportunities. I think also supporting advocacy. And I think this is why in front of our hospital, um, a lot of us were taking a knee um, after George Floyd was was murdered. And I think this is really the, the point that we as healthcare providers have a role to play in this conversation. And even in areas where you may not realize the impact is significant, um, for example, when it came to areas where testing was widely accessible, there was not adequate testing in areas that had a much larger proportion of um, Black Americans. And so through um, advocating and writing and um, consistent engagement with people who set policies, we were able to um, engage with the right people so that there is now adequate or at least increased, I should say, testing in communities where there hadn't been before for more people of color. And again, I think it, it really, there's so many ways that physicians can be involved, whether you're someone who cares about food access and nutrition um, and food deserts. I mean, there's so many ways in that space alone that you can get involved. So I think there's, I think there are more than enough channels where physicians can, can engage in this work. But I wanna talk about the really big issues. Um, let's take housing, for example. Yeah. You know, homelessness is clearly a risk factor for your health. Um, I don't know if anybody's demonstrated that it's a risk factor for COVID, but I, I mean, there are a lot of homeless here in the San Francisco Bay Area where I live, and they're in tents that are right next to each other. They have no ability to protect themselves, social distance, any, any of that kind of stuff. What role can we play? And I'm going to tell you that I do know of a health plan that I belong to and used to work for, Kaiser Permanente, that's actually... Um, making an investment in housing because they believe it's such an important social determinant of health. Um, do you think this is something that, and I, and, uh, that either plans or individual doctors or whatever, the whole healthcare system as a whole should be advocating for? And how effective can they be? It seems like, it seems like a huge problem. I, I, I agree with you. Um, I'll give you an example. When I write notes in, for my patients who are admitted, I actually put homelessness as a problem on the list of sort of health problems that we're dealing with um, as a central issue, really. And, you know, we work very closely with our social worker colleagues and others. I read an article just the other day by some colleagues who, who really said that to, to change the system at a very fundamental level, we as physicians may not be able to solve every problem ourselves, but we can advocate for the health consequences and work alongside people that are working to, to better housing and, and to get better access to foods and things like that, because they all relate to health in different ways. Um, and so partnering up uh, and, and creating allyship across disciplines, I think is really important. Um, but also recentering the way that we think about these issues, right? So in, in my training, I've definitely had colleagues who've been frustrated by patients coming in who are homeless um, or having negative thoughts about them or having sort of negative biases towards these patients. Um, or even attributing blame to why somebody ended up being homeless. I think there's something to be said for changing the way that we even think about these issues to begin with, which is where sort of a lot of this um, early education around structural uh, racism and structural uh, and social determinants of health in the pre-medical and medical curriculum, I think is so, so critically important because we need to not only change what we do, um, but also how we even think about this uh, as an issue. Because I think traditionally people may 
there are some people in medicine who still hold on to the notion that medical is pure, medicine is largely biology and, and, and clinical and don't really see the social aspects as part of uh, that. Um, but I think it is improving. Well, I mean, I think to Abrara's point, I mean, I think this was certainly a challenge I faced when I was a resident at the Brigham that I, not, not that this, not the specific scenario that Abrara describes, but the feeling of um, just an inability to help people with these larger structural problems that we were kind of putting a bandaid over what I felt like was a gaping wound and they would be back in the hospital within a relatively short period of time. And that's why I chose to focus more on public health, um, still with an eye towards caring for patients, but I do feel like a lot of us who start to engage in this space often do look to expand our lens so that we can get involved in these other aspects that impact people's health. Because sometimes I, I recognize for individual physicians or nurses or other frontline providers, it can feel, um, just deeply challenging and frustrating that you can't really address the larger issues that are bringing people back to the hospital, you know? And so I think, I think a lot of us often end up in a field, a blended field with public health or some other component of our work that can speak to some of these, these larger issues. Well, maybe you need to go into politics. <laughs> these are political issues that are going to be solved by the yeah. political process. I know. And that being said, I, I, Brian, I'm very interested that you actually list homelessness on your problem list, especially since it's, I don't think, a billable condition, which is what drives a lot of people's, um, the way they arrange their, their um, list of conditions. Uh, but my question to you is, um, for both of you, is how often are doctors even asking about this stuff? You know, my experience is that I remember getting a patient one time that I never saw him except um, I was an emergency physician covered up on the gurney, right? And when he stood up and I saw him for the first time in his street clothes, I was shocked because he was about half the size that I thought he was. And it turned out he was an expert in gems, right? And to me, he was just the, the you know, diabetic frequent flyer. Um, so it, I'm hoping things have improved since the time that I was in practice, but I, I would imagine that there's still a lot of doctors that, as you said, Abrar, the, their issue is, tell me your symptoms and let me give you a pill, as opposed to taking the time to really draw out patients about what their social circumstances are. Yeah, I, I, you know, it's interesting. So I, I tried to tell, um, you know, some of the interns that I work with who, who are more junior to me um, to just keep asking why, right? So let's say you have a patient that comes in with hypertension, why? They may say, I missed my medications, why? I didn't have a, a transport to go to the, to, to the pharmacy. Why? I didn't have access to this voucher this week for my, for my food voucher, so I had to use the money that I did have to, to get food. And so the deeper you dig, you start to uncover what the underlying root cause is. So you may say, well, this person's coming in with hypertension, you can leave it at that. I did the same thing for COVID, and this is actually how I started to discover why people were getting COVID and why COVID was getting transmitted. So when I was working in April in the emergency room, the COVID emergency room, I'd see a lot of patients who were coming in and I'd ask not just what their symptoms were, but who were they around? What was their home situation like? Who do they think they caught COVID from and, and why, right? And I started to uncover a lot of people who were at home, could not safely isolate, lived in one bedrooms or two bedrooms with multiple people in their homes uh, and didn't have a way to safely isolate. 
And so that that sort of started to paint a picture to me of like how COVID transmission in, in one part at least was happening in the patients that I was seeing. And I think that's the beauty of clinical medicine and what it adds to all of the other work that we might do in public health or public policy um, in that people, if you can build the trust, people will tell you very intimate details about all of the hardships and challenges that they're facing on a very intimate level. Um, whether that is a, a drug addiction or, or and some kind of other substance uh, use addiction um, or, some, or domestic violence or something else, you get access to very intimate details that help you understand why people are falling through the cracks and where the system's failing them. And so um, what, you, to, your, to your initial question, how many people are or are not thinking about this? I don't know the exact number, but I will say that I think it is a way of thinking about medicine that maybe is not, um, I think it's being taught more, but maybe it wasn't as much 50 or 60 years ago. And, and I could be wrong, but that's my guess. No, I think, I think you're right. So it's interesting that um, you talk about housing, um, the close circumstances of housing being an issue for your Latinx um, patients or for the patients that you were seeing with COVID. I live in a, a suburban county in the Bay Area um, that's actually a fairly wealthy area. Um, and we have a Latinx community that lives in a certain area where the houses are all close together. And we have a, uh, we're, we're, still, we're still on restrictions because we had a high enough rate of uh, transmission, but 70% of the cases in our predominantly white county are from the Latinx community that lives in this one area. Yeah. The data will really back that up too. A colleague of ours, Jose Figueroa, just wrote a really great piece about really exploring these differentials and what's driving um, these higher rates of COVID in the Latinx and African-American community. And he found that the, the three biggest predictors in the Latinx communities, number one issue was living in crowded housing. And that speaks to what you're finding and that speaks to what Abrar found in the emergency room. They often live in multi-generational households. They have children, working adults, and older grandparents. And that leads to the second major issue is often those working adults are working in essential industries, food service industry. We saw that here in um, the town of Chelsea, which is um, adjacent to, to Boston. It was, has one of the highest rates in um, the Boston area of COVID. Um, about two-thirds of that population in Chelsea are um, Latinx, and about 60% of that population work in the essential food service industry. So all you could do is put that math together, and that's where you get, you know, an explosion. So let's, let's turn to some solutions. And the first thing I'm going to ask you about is something that you, that you, wrote in your story where you said, we, we need to start holding racist people accountable. And the problem I have, I, I absolutely agree, but it's such an overheated environment. It needs to be done, but how do we do it safely? And how do we do it effectively? You know, this is definitely not an easy issue. I remember when I was in medical school, this would come up a lot because as medical students, we, um, it, it, we had a whole program where if, if like a faculty member, for instance, said something or an attending or maybe a fellow student had said something to you that you felt was racist um, or sexist or ableist or, or really anything discriminatory, um, 
it would it would sort of go to a private so you could anonymously sort of report it but depending on the timing of that report you know you kind of feared if it could be traced back to you based on when you did a rotation for instance in the hospital um it would go to a committee and then that would sort of go to a more senior dean or somebody and that person would be tasked with discussing this with um whoever was in questionable offense um and that system didn't really work perfectly uh, just because as medical students, we were so scared that anything we said could be used against us when we were applying to residency, um, when we were applying to, you know, any sort of position because medicine is such a small community. Um, and so I think it becomes challenging in that way um, because the power dynamics are what they are. And I think as stu when we were, when I was a student, we, we knew what those were, right? With especially people going into a very competitive field it was very hard to, to do or say anything. And so I think accountability is not easy. And it's, you, we work in these, these very tight knit communities, uh, even within the hospital. Um, but, you know, obviously Ingrid is, is more senior than me and she has more experience than I do with this. So I, I'd be interested to see what her experience. How do you do with Ingrid? <laughs> I just have more gray hairs. That's it. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, it's interesting. I was thinking about it in the context of a class. I'm teaching with a colleague now at Harvard University to undergraduates, and Abrar is helping us with this class. And I've been so impressed that the undergraduates um, have really actually from day one started speaking about these issues, which I think is really interesting. So this class is, is devoted to COVID. The whole course is on COVID this semester. And on day one, students, undergraduates were putting notes in the, you know, it's all virtual, of course, right now. They were putting notes in the chat saying, we really want to make sure that there's adequate representation of faculty and teaching fellows here that matters to us. And I just thought that was so welcome to see that from these undergraduates, because I could imagine a situation where they might feel intimidated because of the, as, as Abrar was speaking to, the um, intrinsic hierarchy of this um, this situation, but I actually am really deeply hopeful that I see a lot of, of momentum and energy now. And I think as you know, when you hold power, you have to create space, right, to allow those voices to come forward. And so I feel like that's my job is to create a space for open and honest discussions and, and to be able to call out behavior that is racist. Um, because that has not been the norm for a very long time. And so I do think it's going to be a shift over time, but I think now more than ever with these confluence of events that we're experiencing, I do think people are feeling more able to have some of these harder conversations. Well, that, that's good. It's, I'm glad to hear that. And it kind of segues into the last question that I wanna ask you, which is, how are we actually doing um, with respect to addressing racism in each of the following areas? Admission and graduation from medical school. And if you wanna add anything about pre-med, that would be fine. Teaching and formally studying the health impacts of racism in medical school, residencies and, and continuing medical education. I mean, are we, are we teaching about this? Um, and, encouraging more minority students to get trained as medical researchers, where they may be more apt, perhaps, to take on some of these issues from a research point of view. 
And then finally, promoting people from ethnic minorities to positions of, of leadership. How are we doing in any or all of those areas? So the first one is, how are we doing with respect to admission and graduation from medical school? So, you know, I don't have all the exact numbers on hand, but um, I know that we still, there is still a disproportionate um, number of medical students of um, Black or Latinx background compared to uh, where health inequities are focused, right? So we, we have a lot of data to suggest why, aside from just the inherent equity piece of this, which is really what drives a lot of this, right? Just justice and equity. Beyond that, we also do have studies and data showing that um, patients who are of a Black background actually are more likely to trust um, physicians who are of Black background, are also more likely to get more attention and time spent on them, and actually have better outcomes and more likely to take up preventative measures, which, which is so critical. Um, so I'd say on that front, there's so much more that needs to be done. There, there's a lot more in terms of recruitment. There's a lot more that needs to be done in terms of uh, supporting um, uh, students that are from socioeconomically challenged backgrounds. So for an, uh, one thing that came to mind was one of the medical schools, I think it might have been NYU, was offering um, sort of like free tuition to a number of students, um, I think regardless of what their socioeconomic background was. And, you know, a lot of people had spoken up on that saying that actually, we need to be promoting equity. And that may mean redistributing those kind of funds to students who need them most um, and, and sort of reaching out to students in communities that are most socioeconomically challenged rather than something that's kind of more blanket like that. So I think that, you know, I think there's just so much more that we need to do on that front. And, and you know, until we see, um, until we see true equity, right, uh, I think that the work is not done. I, I agree. And so Ingrid, I'm going to ask you the next one. What about teaching and formally studying the health impacts of racism since you seem to be doing, have your feet in, in both those areas of medicine. Um, how are we doing? Are, do we have enough uh, minority um, teachers? Do we have enough, um, enough research or information or even teaching on health impacts of racism? Um, I would say, you know, it, there's progress, but we're definitely not there yet. And I think, um, there's been some really great writing over the last few months. Um, from physicians of color, trainees of color, about moving in this direction. Um, there was a piece that Abrar just shared with me in The Lancet, um, moving towards anti-racist praxis in medicine. Um, there's a lot more writing from, from even medical students. Harvard Medical School has the first um, black woman class president now. Um, which seems shocking to me. This is the first, um, this is the first and it's 2020, you know, but um, all that to say that we're not there yet. I do think there's been some interesting innovations. So one of my colleagues, Jessica Haber, applied for and got a grant through NIH to um, bring together a group of mentors, of which I am one of them, to help specifically mentoring people um, from underrepresented minorities. So our goal as a group of mentors, I think there's about 20 of us, is focused on bringing up a new generation of researchers and specifically targeting people who have, have not been at the table. And so I do think, interestingly, there are ways now that bigger funders, bigger organizations are supporting mentors who can then support 
junior investigators to get more researchers into the field. Well, that's, that's really good to hear. And that was the next category. So you really answered that. The last one is promoting people from ethnic minorities um, to positions of leadership. And I'm really glad to hear about the first woman, black woman president um, at Harvard. Uh, but what about, what about deans? What about department chairs? What about you know, all the other leadership um, out there that is, is pretty white? You know, that, that's, that reminds me of something I was meaning to bring up earlier, um, which was that, so when I did my MPH at the Harvard Chan School in 2016, um, there was a movement to sort of remove the portraits of um, the past deans of the school, which were all white males um, for the most part, uh, and replace them with other important critical figures in, in public health who had played a big role in the school, but who are also from um, other backgrounds. So uh, having uh, female representation, um, having uh, representation from people of color, black and Latinx, uh, Native American, uh, major figures in, in public health. And I remember what was interesting to me was the immense um, resistance that was felt um, and that was vocal from alumni and people who are, you know, some of whom were of kind of older generations to this type of change. And I, I saw the same thing happen actually at the Brigham where the same thing happened. Um, so in our main auditorium at the Brigham, we have uh, a lot of the department heads um, or chairs of medicine that were on the wall. And they again, primarily were white um, male figures. I think one um, Dr. Zhao uh, was not, but the, the rest were. and. That also changed, but you know the there was hesitance, uh, hesitancy and resistance to that from prior deans and others who were saying that this is destroying the legacy of medicine. And you know it's 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 interesting. I think that anytime there is a shift in power, there will be resistance from the people in power to to let that shift not actually happen. Um, but as as Ingrid had mentioned, a lot of that sort of momentum is coming from students. Um, and sort of people that are now coming into medicine who maybe traditionally were not in medicine uh, in decades past. And I think it's a really important change that, that's on the way. Well, I, I wanna thank you very much. And I'm gonna leave it at that because that was a hopeful note. Um, I really appreciate you being here and shining a light on this very important issue. And it certainly is an issue of our time. So thank you for the work you do. Thank you for sharing this information with our audience. And I wish you the best of luck as you go forward with this mission. Thank you so thank much you. for having us. To learn more, see the show notes or visit AJMC.com. To get in touch with us, you can email info at AJMC.com or follow us on Twitter at AJMC underscore journal. And if you like the podcast, don't forget to subscribe and rate us.